nice. That's really, really, really nice. Technology, you're a bastard. Sorry. <laughs> you are. We plugged all our stuff in, and it sort of worked. And then it didn't. So technology, you're a bastard. USB hub bastard. Anyway, this is podcast number 18. Podcast number 18. It's better than technology, which is a bastard. Sorry about that. That was my um, <laughs> that was my technology hate song. <laughs> so welcome to episode eighteen, all our wonderful listeners. It was um, kind of like Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was it was that it was, sort a very, of, it was a very funky Rage Against the Machine. It was that level of animosity and anger f- coming from me. <laughs> uh, yeah, we just plugged our stuff in, and it decided to flash and not work, and we, but we figured it out now because uh, today was our first podcast via zoom because we were we were zooming over the atlantic weren't that's we? right so essentially you're listening right now even though this is right at the start of the podcast we've already done the speaking we had um uh, an incredible chap on and i was very i was hugely starstruck <laughs> <laughs> i was like i don't i don't know what to ask and where i'm just going to listen this is awesome <laughs> but anyway moving on so um so we had um richard hilton who is probably best known for being one of the keyboard players for Sheep. Amongst other things. Amongst other things. And so um, la- last episode, we had Phil, who's a one- <laughs> wonderful chap. Uh, amazing. I mean, I don't need to tell you this because you've probably heard all this. You haven't heard, if you haven't listened to this, go back and check it out. Um, wonderful chap, amazing educator, and the keyboard player in my tribute band, Sheep to Sheep. Um, and that gave us inspiration to then... It went because it was a fantastic podcast. It then gave us inspiration to go and ask the actual key p- keyboard player from Actual Sheep to do a podcast with us. And it bloody well happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing what you get if you ask. Isn't well, it? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't wonder, I wonder if um, Brad Pitt plays guitar. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? I don't know. Maybe uh, yeah. we should, we're going to have to ask him. There we go. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, we were, so we had it all planned out, didn't we? Yeah. With microphones and monitors and interfaces and stuff. And they ha- you had that thing where we, um, we, we set a meeting, we scheduled a meeting on Zoom for him for a certain time. And then Zoom gives you a countdown of uh, meeting starts in 14 minutes, meeting starts in 13 minutes. <laughs> and everything was going well. And then suddenly the interface started flashing and we lost all our microphones. Because <laughs> <laughs> technology is a bastard. <laughs> um, that's the bottom line. Uh, pardon my Francais. But um, yeah, but we got it. We we got it in the end. And thanks to Zoom as well for sorting out your little thing that you do with your um, recording files and recording audio and video and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, I think we've got it. So so I haven't edited it yet. So um, I'm going to try and make it as... I, mean, I, th- 
I think we don't have any technical technological problems for the last hour or so. So the last hour is going to be excellent. <laughs> so just bear with us. Bear with us. I'm hopefully I can kind of edit the edit it into something that makes sense. Yeah, we we're professionals. Come on. Because <laughs> he was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, he was a lovely and what a lovely guy. And um, yeah, it, and, and like not trying to make you listen till the end, but some of the stuff he says towards the end of the podcast about um, life in music and the ethos and the, and the mentality that a musician should have. It just yeah, it floored me. And, and it's exactly right. He's, he's right. And it's exactly how we should all be thinking. And it's mm -hmm. a lovely thing. So it's worth a listen. Cool. All right, should we do it? You're smashing. Okay, here we go. We, got, we are going to, by the magic of technology, we're going to transport you into our interview with Richard Hilson. Here we go. Cool. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Richard. Thank you for having me. I can't, I just have to say quickly, last podcast we did was a chap called Phil. Shout out to Phil. He is the piano player in, keys player, piano player. Yeah. I don't want to insult yeah, anyone. Nice. Um, <laughs> in a Chic to Chic, which is a Chic tribute band. Richard knows Chic to Chic because he knows Kelly. Ah, uh, that's right. Good. And then this week, we've actually got... <laughs> We've actually got the, real the deal. keys piano play the real deal. It's insane. It's I'll try insane. not. I'll, I'll try <laughs> not to step on his on his uh, no, on his I've, vibe. I've no idea how this has happened, but um, yeah, it's just rather pleasing. So oh, good. So well, thank you ever so much. I'm for happy being to here. be here. No, nice great. to meet you, Carl. Yeah, great stuff. Now um, we obviously got video because we're doing this on Zoom. I'm going to ask you straight off the bat. You're sat in a uh, your own home sort of studio currently. Yeah. yeah. And is is this where you would produce a lot of your tracks and is this where, where i got, work these just, days mostly yeah. you know when i'm working in the box by myself this is where i'll be that is what that's it and then so your main instrument of torture is sat to your left hand side there is that right or is that just one of them well, that's that's a couple of them and then there's one over here that's it okay. with frets <laughs> and uh, strings on it and uh <laughs> There's a few other bits and bobs, as you guys like to say, floating around here in terms of <laughs> percussion and ocarinas and wacky stuff Amazing. like that. And, uh, you know, uh, frame drums. There's a frame drum in the house somewhere. So you know, it's, this it's, stuff. It's one of those, your new ones. You were telling me you got a new. Yes, this one. It's a Roland FP60, which I um, am pleased to have because it has the same key bed as the keyboards I play on stage. And I like that key bed. Are you pleased with it? Is it worked out okay for you? Mm-hmm. It's great. You know, one of, the, one of the best things is like when I need a quick reference for something or I just want to put my hand down, it's got built-in speakers. Now, I never thought I'd need to own something that had built-in speakers, <laughs> but it turns out to be quite handy because I don't have to boot up software just to do something simple like play a road sound just to hear something. You know, so it's convenient and it's and it feels good to play and it's it feels better than the last thing I had there and the last thing I had there had buttons that rattled and it sounded like a percussion instrument when I played it and it drove me nuts. <laughs> so is, is piano your first instrument? Is it the first instrument you started learning or did you come to piano? Piano was the first instrument I I wanted to and started to learn and uh, the wanting to part came when I was three years old. Oh, wow. And wow. the beginning to part came when I was five years old. <laughs> so it wasn't a um, a parents force lessons thing. It was an absolute. No, it was me wanting to. You, and yeah, them, them going to the 
teacher uh, that somehow my mother chose very wisely, actually. And she said, well, I don't usually take students until they're six. And my mother said, well, would you meet him? And she said, yes. And they met, she met me and she decided to start teaching me at age five. Wow. And uh, I was, I was really into it. And uh, at age seven, I started playing brass instruments. And at age nine, I started playing guitar. So, so you were a child that um, you just practiced of your own volition. You, you didn't have parents nagging you. You just, you just loved it so much. You just got on with oh, it. Oh, there was you? some nagging. There was some <laughs> nagging. And, and I've, I'm a sort of lazy practicer, and, and, or it certainly was when I was a kid. Excuse me. Certainly was when I was a kid. Um, yeah, my preparation skills improved significantly as I got a little more mature. But, uh, but uh, back then, you know, it was challenging stuff, and I had to, you know, meet a weekly requirement. So, um, well, I was going to ask, what what was the sort of first what was your introduction to music? Was it classical? Was it or was there? Well, yeah, there was. Yeah, there was sort of was not. When I was five years old starting this, the Beatles hadn't hit America yet. Of course. To give you an idea of the context of the time Mm. frame. So um, it was classical. And not only was it classical, but it was based around a uh, then controversial teaching method, which emphasized music theory and ear training right from the start. And so across seven years, by the time I was 12 years old, I had enough ear training and music theory to probably have passed. Uh, what became two years of college theory subsequently when I went away to college for music. Magic. Oh, wow. Magic. So the theory and uh, ear training thing runs deep with me and it runs deep with my kids too, actually, because um, we would be talking about it when they were younger. So were, you, were your parents musical then or, or was your musical family generally? Uh, not, neither of my parents played. My father uh, had in his family uh, professional musicians in the history, one of whom had um, uh, bequeathed him a Steinway Grand Piano from 1914, wow. which is what I grew up, which is what I grew up playing, oh, and which dear. currently <laughs> lives in, the, and which currently lives downstairs in my house. Oh wow! So you still have it? That's quite. I mean, it must be worth yes. a bit now. It's quite an antique, isn't it? Well, it was. Yeah, it was an antique then. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's still even more. Now I'm an antique, uh, and it's even more of an antique. <laughs> that's quite. That's quite spoiled. I'm not. I'm not yes. Um, it, yes. No that, question. That's lovely, isn't it? That's a lovely. <laughs> no thing question to about. No question about it. I was spoiled, and I. <laughs> but I mean, uh, the sound of that piano. I mean, because subsequently I'd become a a recording engineer in a studio. I ran a major recording studio and there's various other things I did. But the way I hear the whole, all of life was informed by this piano and the sound of this piano. And it, and it, it was incredibly beneficial, but there's no doubt that, yes, this is a pretty spoiled kind of way of beginning. Yeah. In the best kind of way. (laughs) If it's any consolation, the guitars I started on were utter crap. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same for everyone, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Give, but when I sold, <laughs> when I sold musical instruments for a brief time when I was younger, I used to really emphasize to the parents that if you build frustration into the process by giving them an instrument that's substantially unplayable, you're defeating the purpose. And uh, a few of them bought that line of reasoning, but most of them went for the cheapest possible thing they could That's get. It. 
I just see a lot of uh, my students come in um, with very like twenty pound cheap guitars, which is made out of a slab of wood. You know, strings are like an inch off the fretboard, and they come mm. in and say, "I don't, I can't play. It's my fingers hurt, and my core sound rubbish." And I, and I, I feel feel sorry for them. I say, "Well, it's going to sound rubbish until you spend at least like seventy quid on a guitar." But the parents aren't happy to do it, so it's like you're fighting a losing battle with an instrument like that, aren't you? Yes, that, that's the point. Is you've built the process already. You have two choices: tell them to quit or sell them a slide. <laughs> play, slide play slide guitar. Now I, I was definitely um, my friend bought me my first bass years and years and years and years ago. After he said I was, I had a guitar, but I wasn't digging it, and um, he said I was air basing. <laughs> so okay, bass, and uh, I've been lucky. But he didn't. He definitely didn't buy me some nineteen fifties. 54 Fender or anything like that, you know what I mean? So I, I think I've got a 95-pound Squire, which was <laughs> more than enough at the time. So, Fine. Yeah, it was. It was, it was it That's a, a much more playable guitar than these other things we've been talking about. My sons, I told both of my sons, if you learn to play bass guitar, you'll work for the rest of your days. Because it's always the hardest thing to find, isn't it? Now, that and the lead singer, I mean... Which you know, Aiden happens to have both of in his house, but uh, <laughs> but it's usually the hardest things to find. No, it's good, good bass players and good singers. We're very fortunate to have chosen that. I think. But, well, is that your first? Interest? Yeah, but it's out of necessity, though. But it's because I played guitar and then I joined a band that needed a bass player. Ah. And I was like, okay, well, I'll take the, uh, I'll draw the short straw. <laughs> But, it, but it's not the short straw, in my view. It's no, not the no, I mean, short straw. But back then, you just want to be at the front rocking out, don't you? Um, I see. So to be the bass player is not seen as a cool job. You want to be a singer or a guitarist. So even a drummer like, is perceived to be cooler than a bass player. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I love you. I'm, I'm glad I did it. Endless jokes about that. Oh, endless, yeah. yeah. I've had a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> you seem, you've seemed to have done okay for yourself now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> so if you are so... We started off classic, classically speaking. Um, yes. But we're talking to you now as obviously the keyboard player for Nile Rogers and Sheik. How did that yeah. transition from classical into, I guess, more modern styles? How, how did that happen? Well, uh, I saw the Beatles. That was it. And, uh, <laughs> and it was life-changing for me. Yeah. And I wore the grooves off of the first American release, which was called Meet the Beatles. And... Uh, then comes mid sixties after a good solid dose of Beatles and Rolling Stones and Dave Clark five. I got, a, I came upon cream Hendrix, Procol Harum, um, various things like that, uh, mid sixties rock and roll basically. And, uh, I was, I wanted to do that and that was exciting to me. And so I spent the last few years of my classical quote unquote training, uh, really more wanting to focus on song playing and band playing than the solo classical elitist kind of vibe. So it just came through what I was listening to and what I became interested in. And then as the sixties progressed into the seventies, cause I, I call this the second Renaissance, the period you can argue about the dates. You could say from 1952, you could say from 1956, whatever, until say whatever the mid seventies, or maybe you think, I'm sorry, maybe you think it goes to 1980 or, you know, we can quibble the dates, but somewhere in there when music was still significantly an art driven enterprise rather than a uh, commerce driven enterprise, 
there was uh, what I call the second renaissance, where the advancement in all areas of music was incredibly intense. And, you know, you, you, if you want to say it's the whole 1900s up to that point, you could say that. But it, it was there was some really, really rich development going on in all kinds of styles of music, wherever you want to start talking about mm-hmm. it. And uh, yeah, yeah. I feel lucky to have been part of it. And so all of that really grabbed me as a listener as I was growing through that period and informed my desire to be a keyboard player in a band, which I did professionally when I starting when I was 15 years old and throughout oh, wow. high school. So your first played, gig was that young. That's, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. In a trio where I was the only harmonic play. It was uh, drums, keyboard, and saxophone. And we were playing like weddings and bar mitzvahs. Yeah. Is, like is that. that jazz then? Or what kind of records were we doing? <laughs> It was wedding band repertoire. Uh, how do you describe that? <laughs> um, at the time, wedding band repertoire was not very much rock and roll. Pop music of the day. Mm-hmm. So a pop song of the day that's not rock and roll would be like Sunny. Okay. Sunny. Yesterday my life was filled with pain. That that's Sunny. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Or, um, you know, like so popular songs of the day that weren't really, you know, I don't think we played any Beatles songs. And uh, but then there were dance styles. You had to play rumbas and cha-chas and tangos and waltzes and horas and uh, uh, Irish jigs and whatever, depending on the uh, function you were supporting, you would have to learn ethnic music that would appeal to the people attending the function. So if it was an Italian wedding, you'd learn tarantella and things like that and so it was very sort of your traditional old school mixture of older ballroom dance styles that included latin dance styles and things like that and it was you know four sets a night four 45 to 50 minute sets a night and you and you're hoping for that fifth set of overtime because you'll make some decent money but i mean (laughs) working your working your ass off and i used to wear the keyboard around my neck back then which was kind of a novelty not too many people were doing it yeah yeah yeah. there's a there's a picture so if facebook ever comes back online there's a picture (laughs) up there of this not not like a keytar style no 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 hanging yeah, yeah, hanging yeah, fully yeah, yeah. two hand, two hand yeah. playing. I mean, I was the only <laughs> rhythm section player, but it was me, the drummer, and the sax player. So yeah, I was exactly handling all it. of that. And I, so I'd stand up through these gigs of that length. <laughs> um, and that sounds like it could be three or four hours long. Yeah. <laughs> no, four to five, four to five hours long. And, and uh, yeah, it was great. It was, you know, left, left hand going mad on the low end. Well, trying to be a bass player <laughs> as best yeah, I can yeah, yeah, with yeah. my left hand. And, <laughs> Trying to hold down the chords as best I can with my right hand. Fortunately, I wasn't singing on the gig, so at least I had that going for me. Um, and then at the same time in high school, I was playing uh, pianist and pit orchestra stuff, and I would play in various bands, pick up rock bands that would do concerts at the school and stuff like that. So I was actually pretty busy as a musician and as uh, also, uh, incidentally, a hockey player when I was in school and I was, you know, my life was consumed with music and hockey uh, growing up. What position? Uh, started out as a goalie, but uh, ended up playing uh, forward and defense because nice. I could skate. 
I start it, skiing oh, really, talking, really early. Oh, now I feel lame. Yeah, not, not, you're you're not talking, you're talking ice hockey. <laughs> I, was, I used to play field hockey, you know what I mean? I was a goalie oh. in a field hockey team. Oh, so, yeah, oh yeah, I yeah, see. Yeah, yeah, so, <laughs> no, no, no. Which, no, is, very, I started, which, is, which I, is a little bit easier than skating around and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but <laughs> we just run. We just run on a grass field. So, uh, <laughs> right. There's no, lots less, to, less skill, but. I used to play like 10 months of the year, five days a week sometimes. Brilliant, it was, wow. I played a lot of hockey when I was young and I ended up, qu- I kind of quit when I graduated high school. Nice. So was it, so you were on the musician route from a quite an early age, but so from, so from very early on, you, you decided you were going to be a musician, I guess, did you? And then that's the kind of trajectory. You um, I wasn't quite so goal oriented as that. Uh, <laughs> I knew this is what I wanted to do now. I wasn't making any decisions about where it was all going to go, which is sort of why I I quit lessons at 12 and just started playing guitar and keyboards and whoever would have me's band. And, you know, know, mostly with much older people, I, I I was always the kid in the band, which is kind of the opposite of what I am now. Um, (laughs) And uh, so uh, it, it was interesting when I got to go to wanting to go to college because it was, oh my goodness, I need to have be able to demonstrate some expertise in <laughs> classical performance that I haven't practiced in many, many years. So I had to kind of brush up very quickly to get myself into college right. as a music manager because that's what I decided I wanted to do. Because there were no popular music courses back. I mean, they're, they're, relative, they're a relatively new invention, aren't they? So I guess you, if you wanted to be a musician, it was the classical route, was it? Pretty much. There were one or two schools out there at the time that specialized in jazz training. Most notably was Berkeley in Boston, which was not yet an accredited college, but was more of a trade school kind of vibe, uh, sophisticated trade school kind of vibe with a great faculty. But nevertheless, they would take pretty much anybody who could afford or wrangle the money to get in there. (laughs) Um, But I did look at it and I looked at a lot of different schools and some of them wanted me and some of them didn't. I initially tried to get in as a trombone major because I was a brass player um, and I hadn't played classical piano in a long time. But ultimately I ended up going to Ithaca through a very bizarre set of circumstances, ended up going to Ithaca College as a piano major on probation for a semester to prove that I belonged there. Oh, like a you, trial. Like prove a trial your worth, run. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I had a fantastic teacher who was utterly sympathetic to me and uh, <laughs> recognized some talents where I had them and some giant gaping holes in my talents where I didn't. So they, he was uh, very good for me. And I, I admired him enormously, and I am always going to be grateful to him for taking me on and the way he did and uh, tailoring it towards who I was rather than shoving me into some kind of prefab curriculum that he would have had for a more experienced classical player. And it got me through college. It was great. Yeah, certainly through the first half of college until he left and then I had other teachers. That's something we've noticed with with a lot of our um, podcast interviews is that back in in their kind of... uh formative years there's one there tends to be one person yeah and a, a like really that mentor that mentoring person a really that, hard a big, like a big influence almost, yeah really influenced someone's just shows you the importance of good tuition absolutely and, and connecting with the students not only on a educational level but on a personal level as well well in my case it's more than one because that first lady was an absolute godsend to me and in fact i'm still friends online with her daughter 
uh, that lady who took me on at five and, and who taught me until I was 12, who taught me all of that music theory and ear training that on which the entire rest of this folly that I'm on is based. Wow. So it's, it was, she was huge for me. And then the first guy, I, the guy I, who kind of practiced me up in the summer before college to get me ready to go there was good. Mm -hmm. But then the guy I got when I got there was really, really good. And the guy who replaced him, fortunately, only lasted one semester and we didn't get along at all. And then the guy who came in after that was fantastic. And I still love him dearly. And uh, I've gone back and visited him. Um, and uh, so I've had a real lot of great teachers in every aspect of my uh, field, whatever that is, because I do a lot of things. So I had a great engineering teacher who taught me how to run recording studios and build recording studios. And I had a great, you know, like... Computers, I kind of, I had a few great uh, guys who would show me little things, but I mostly developed my computer ability on my own. And uh, so I've had tons of great teachers and you can't say, as you just did, you can't say enough about these people. It's mm. just, uh, um, yeah, <laughs> I still feel great love for them. That's great. That's great. So, I mean, you, you spoke about your studio work and your computer work there. When we had, when we had a pre-Zoom the other day, me, you and Kelly, Mm -hmm. um you're updating your ipad i remember rightly mm -hmm. and you said you said you said something like oh i should be good at this because i wrote the code was what did is that right did I hear no that right? i didn't write the code i test <laughs> i i don't write code i tested i beta test operating systems uh freelance it's just for free for apple i mean you anybody can do it you sign up for their seed program and they'll send you broken operating systems to mess around with um <laughs> Usually they're not that broken, fortunately, but uh, sometimes they are. <laughs> and I, I don't mind living on the thin ice and there's nothing that mission critical that I'm doing with one of these things that I can't put some of it at risk over, over like looking at where it's going. And I think knowing where it's going is part of what keeps me in business. So I'm seeing here, um, so talk about your studio work, I'm seeing kind of the, the, uh, the musician strain and like the interest in technology strain i guess that's the meeting point is it well it all it's when you know it's a good question and when you know i started out learning music and then i played professionally all through college and then i graduated college and i decided i want to keep music special and i don't really just want to do any old thing that comes along and i wasn't much liking the gigs i was being offered as a keyboard player so i decided to do other things for money and keep the music special. So I started working in recording studios and in recording circumstances. I worked at a tape mastering facility that did manufacturing of cassettes and eight track cartridges. Yes. Oh, wow. And I was a, I was a mastering engineer in a tape uh, manufacturing facility for a while. And then I got a job in the major recording studio uh, on Long Island where I lived. And Due to a set of circumstances nobody could have foreseen or predicted in a period of nine months, I went from an unpaid apprentice to chief engineer and director of operations <laughs> of the studio at like age 26. Oh my God. Amazing. <laughs> so it just worked out that way. And I did have the skills and the knowledge to be able to cope with it, fortunately, but it, it just all kind of came together. And at the same time, so while I was in high school, uh, around 1972, I had my first encounter with a music synthesizer, uh, which a guitar player in my band had purchased. 
And I had my first encounter with a computer, which was part of the math curriculum of the particular school I was in for 1972. That's pretty early. And uh, it was very primitive. But when computers began to become a little more ubiquitous in homes in around 1980 through 1982, I was kind of already on board with this. And so I was exposed to early PC MS-DOS computers. I was exposed to early uh, Apple pre-Macintosh computers, uh, Apple IIe and things like that. Uh, there was, a, there was a, a computer, a little thing that about this big that called it Sinclair. Uh, oh, yeah, Sinclair. I had one of, I had one of those. <laughs> and so pretty soon I was using, by 1983, I was using uh, sequencers and computers to generate tracks for recordings and making demos based on these things. And uh, five years later, when out of the blue, uh, added, completely unexpectedly, I got a call from somebody claiming to represent Nile Rodgers, who I didn't believe. Um <laughs> That's what I played them that got me the gig. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so how, how do you put yourself in a position where you sit, like, I'm sure, it, well, like, a, almost like a surprise phone call. I mean, but you have to be in a position to be able to, okay, so, to notice so the, you. The story behind that call. During that period of the 80s, I was working various jobs in, in and out of retail. I also was a service technician, particularly specializing in tape machines because I had learned how to use do them at the recording studio. And then uh, I was installing uh, home theaters in rich people's homes and in major sort of uh, spaces like bars and event spaces. And then I got a job teaching at a local college and I was teaching recording engineering and electronic music. And at the same time, I was interviewing with a company called New England Digital, who were in Vermont, who had an instrument that was very expensive and very esoteric called the Synclavier. Oh, yeah, and I've had one of those. I've had yeah. one of those. So I spent, I think it was, I don't know, 18 months or 11 interviews, 18 months, three or four different jobs, trying to get a job with them at a fairly paltry salary and uh, they never did hire me. However, uh, in March of 1988, when now Rogers called them, cause he owned one of these things and said, I need somebody who can operate this thing and play keyboards. They gave him my name. Hey, wow. <laughs> forever, so, uh, forever changed. <laughs> so the phone rings one morning and I pick it up and it's this English accented gentleman named Kevin claiming to represent Nile Rogers. And the first thought in my head was, which one of my friends is smart enough? Because <laughs> I really didn't believe it was, I didn't, I had a hard time believing it. But when I did come to realize that this was not a joke, <laughs> I immediately saw a fork in my life's road laid before me. And that right now my life can go one of two ways. I can continue on this path of going back to grad school, getting a master's degree and teaching this stuff at college, or it could turn into this other thing, working with this famous music producer. And so I went in and I interviewed and I brought those tracks I mentioned before, and he liked the tracks I mentioned before. And so he invited me back to meet Nile and I came back and I met Nile and, uh, the following week, I started working for him, and three weeks later, I was in Hollywood doing the movie Coming to America on the Sinclair. Wow, amazing! That's a, that's a huge film, isn't it? I mean, that's the you can. It has become. It has <laughs> yeah, become. Yeah. <laughs> it has become a big film. 
Yes. And it, for me, it was a gigantic thrill because we were working on the Paramount movie lot right across an alleyway, not much wider than the depth of this room um, from where they were filming the movie. So we on breaks could go watch them filming the movie and they on breaks would come in and watch us making the score. And you kind of had interaction between us and the actors and the director and the producers. And I, I was like just completely in the thick of it and uh, blown away by the opportunity aspects. So, I mean, that's from a personal point of view, what, what, what that's a really steep learning curve as well as there's there a lot of skills you suddenly had to develop and, and learn like well, situations you hadn't encountered before well i first of all grossly exaggerated my experience on the synclavier <laughs> so did, the first <laughs> the first thing exactly and the first thing i had to do was catch up to the promises i had made and uh by the time we went out by the time i had to ship this two hundred thousand dollar behemoth and road cases to california which i'd never done before either um I had enough expertise that I felt like I was going to be able to get through scoring this movie because what we did was uh, orchestra, full orchestral mock-ups pretty much, um, which not many people were doing in early 1988. I mean, as, as two years later, lots of people were doing it, but at that particular time, not many people were working that way. And I was getting pretty decent results. I mean, I wasn't spending that much time on the sounds because it was more about the writing. And if it sounded at all like an oboe, that would do. But Synclavier had a very nice um, library. And so, you know, the average level of the sounds was pretty high. And I was able to get Niall what he needed in order to write the score, uh, which was changing on a moment-to-moment basis anyway. And uh, it was a great team. We worked with the late, great Ed Cherney as an engineer and uh, Dan Dan Carlin Jr., who was a legendary um, music editor and uh, director for movies and who is now affiliated with Berkeley, actually. I believe, no, wait a minute. No, Dan Carlin is affiliated with USC. That's right. He's on the West Coast. And uh, we had a great team and a great time. And John Landis was the director and Leslie Belsberg was the producer. And uh, I have tremendously warm memories. It was intense. It was five weeks of work. Mm-hmm. And there was not no break no break at all um but uh we you know it's a legendary movie now and i'm very proud to have worked on it and happy with the time we spent and there's some great moments recording all of those i don't know if you're familiar with the movie there are some amazing percussion sequences that go along with these african dance things that go on in the movie and those were enormously rewarding sessions to record and watch those guys go because it was some of the best percussionists in the world at the time there and it was i was just in my i was loving it <laughs> loving it <laughs> so so talk us through so the synclavia then is a uh, well, what's the process of setting up a sound in it because i'm guessing it's quite early technology i mean especially considers what we have these days where it's just a button press yes <laughs> <laughs> um initially the synclavier prior to my arrival was an FM synthesizer. It was the first uh, commercially available FM synthesizer, four operator FM synthesizer. And um, at some point, shortly before I started working with Nile, they developed a sampling module that would allow you to sample audio into it and then replay it back into a track or do things with the pitch in order to correct it. Or it was a very sort of 
somewhat rudimentary sampler. And then by the time I got there, they had advanced their sampling to the point where it was very much like today's full featured samplers, except with much tighter timing, much better fidelity mm -hmm. and a perfectly workable sequencer that was by today's standards, a little clunky to use, but not too bad. And uh, I developed over the years of using it, some techniques that, um, allowed me to synchronize live performances to quantize without it being at all obvious or audible to the all listener right. um and taught some of the guys at new england digital this technique and um it was a, it was what we would call by mid 90s a workstation except it was a very very big cumbersome workstation <laughs> built on a computer from the late 1970s running an operating system called able which nobody was even using by the time i got there but that's what this thing was built around and that's it was developed out of a bunch of guys in white river junction vermont uh which is where uh near hanover new hampshire which i believe is where dartmouth college is which is an ivy league college in the united states and so these were some very very bright and ambitious people and oddly enough in the early 80s, I was working in hi-fi and I was uh, working in a store in Burlington, Massachusetts, and a guy walks in, a, sort of a short guy with a beard, and uh, we start talking and it turns out that he's working very hard on developing this computer music instrument with some friends of his called the Synclavier. So I met the guy who, <laughs> one of the two guys who invented this machine eight years before it, or seven years before it became like the foundation of my professional life. And I had no idea <laughs> at the time that any of that sort of serendipity was going on. <laughs> so, I mean, but you mean, it sounds like, um, you know, there's kind of like a moment of, like you say, serendipity or luck or kind of a fortune, I guess, meeting these people. And then your name was put forward to Nile Rogers, but it must've been, you know, the relationship and the work you did with Nile on the movie, I'm guessing that led him to ask you to join the band. Am I right? Is that? Is well, that there was no band. No, there was. Well, I don't know exactly what. I, uh, there was no Chic in 1988. Nile and Bernard right. had gone their sort of separate production ways in the early 80s before I was around, somewhere around 83. And they each had very, very successful production careers. And they didn't really come back together uh, professionally, or as far as I can tell, socially, until Niall's birthday in September of 1989, where they actually did perform, <clears throat> excuse me, with some other people who you would possibly recognize and the original singers of Chic, uh, just a couple of songs at Niall's birthday party. And uh, later that year, they began to record what ultimately became the album Chicism. Mm -hmm on which I worked extensively both as a player, a programmer, and an engineer. So um, there wasn't a Chic. And how I got involved with Chic was it started out as an album project. And that's what I did for a living at that time was work with him on album projects. And so I uh, kind of got involved in Chic music that way. And then it came, then during the course of making it, uh, we were also doing other things. It was, it took a long time to get it completed because they were both still producing other artists along the way. And during the course of that time, uh, Niall got uh, a television show on VH1 called New Visions on which he was the host and needed to have a band. And um, I helped him 
by way of sort of musical directing this uh, four-piece band that would play with these guest artists every week on TV. So the band interaction started around that and my preparation for those uh, various artists and our performances together with those artists, which some of which are available on YouTube. And then when the album was complete and they decided in 1995 to do a benefit concert at a club in New York for a recently deceased mutual friend, I was invited to play that gig. And then the following year, uh, Niall was selected in Japan to be the super JT super producer of which there are now uh, records, DVDs and such. And we went over to Japan and did a bunch of concerts with a lot of guest artists, including Simon LeBond, Steve Winwood, Slash, um, uh-huh. Sister Sledge. And we did uh, three shows and this turned out to be Bernard Edwards' last performances. Um, uh, yes, of course. It's fun- funny you should mention that. Um, it popped up on my YouTube feed just yesterday. I don't know if it's because I've been talking about it and people listen, but I, th- <laughs> I think it was Bernard's, Bernard's last show that actually popped up on my YouTube feed, which was like bittersweet. <laughs> yeah, well, it was bittersweet. And I actually spent, I, I, two things happened that day that never happened before and I never expected. And one of them was that I ended up riding in a cab with Niall and Bernard to the Budokan that night, which was unusual. And then after the show, which Bernard had to be sort of propped up to do because he was not well, um, there was some sort of meet and greet at some dance club that we were all supposed to go to. And Bernard insisted he was going to. And so I ended up sitting with Bernard at the after show and kind of just hanging in there with him and going, you're right, but you know, we talk. And uh, next morning I got up, went to the airport, flew home. And when I got home, I got word that he had passed away. Wow. So it was like that for me. Um, I know it was different for everybody. Niall, I think was the one who went in and discovered him. So that had to have been unbelievably, you know, difficult and uh so subsequent to that a year or so later Niall decides to take um a series of gigs quite a series of gigs in japan at the various blue nut clubs and we need and he needed to put together a chic band and i was invited to be part of that so that's sort of the the trajectory of how i ended up being a keyboard player in chic <laughs> So um, Carl and I are both bass players, ah. um, and I would imagine that quite a few people in our audience are bass players as well. We can't let you talk about Bernard Edwards without telling us a little bit more about Bernard Edwards and what it's like to play with him. Because in bass playing, he's he's like a, a mythical, oh, uh, well, he's just legendary, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, <laughs> Captain, I don't know what the phrase Captain Smooth. He's just it was amazing. Everything, <laughs> everything he did was right for me. Well, he was a fountain of good ideas. And uh, I used to love there. Well, there's two aspects to that. One is watching because my initial exposure was as somebody doing some very basic drum programming and capturing of their writing sessions that led to the songs for Sheikism. That's really where I got my first direct to their creative spark that passed between them. And it was a stunning thing to watch because <laughs> they could lock together and play as though it was one person running the whole thing, that there was yeah. something like seeing overseeing the whole thing that they both shared and that the rest of us aspire to. And uh, so I was 
in absolute awe and shock watching the two of them develop these things together. So that that's the first part of it. Excuse me. And then the second part of it is subsequent to all of that throughout the, the uh, ensuing years, there would occasionally be a session that we were working on at Niles where we would need somebody to come in and play the bass and Bernard would come in and play bass just as a session dude, you know, working with us on whatever it was we were producing. He was producing Nile. And um, one of the greatest compliments I've ever been paid, and it was inadvertent as the best compliments I believe are, was when at the end of a session he had been playing throughout turns to me and says, who's the drummer? And I had programmed those drums. Yeah. Oh, I, wow. I was so <laughs> proud of myself. You said, you said it's me. <laughs> I am the drummer. <laughs> I was so pleased to tell him that I had programmed them, but um, I was just burning with pride because, you know, that's better than getting a pat on the back and thinking, nice yeah, job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's like you've just fooled one of the world's great bass players. <laughs> um, he was a great man. He was. Very direct, but very calm and very measured in his yeah. communications and very, very funny <laughs> and um, and insightful and smart. And I'm sure you've heard the stories Niles told about how Bernard was the one who more or less taught him how to chuck guitar chords because Niles was pretty much of a jazz guitarist before, as I understand it. I wasn't there. But as I understand it, Niles brought his sort of jazz classical background to the table with this and bernard was much more instinctual and uh, and a great leader and uh between them they sort of developed this magnificent style that we all love now and uh that we all enjoyed then so i don't know does that give you any sense yeah. of, of it i yeah. don't know he, i was so thrilled to know him and he was so kind yeah. to me and he said very nice things to me while we were in japan and we hung out a little bit and it was it's a real pleasure and it's a real heartbreak that he's not with us. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, so how how would you um, would you say your role within the Sheep Band now as a keyboard player is it the same as the role you had when you started, or has that changed? Or well, in terms of the performance aspects of the chair that I sit that I occupy in the mm -hmm. band. It hasn't changed that much in terms of what that chair needs to do to make the band work, which is to perform. I mostly play non-piano keyboards, so not the acoustic piano parts, but the Rhodes parts, the clavinet parts. And then I also do the string parts. Now, in the original band, they had string players. So this chair sort of never existed in the form that I fell into it prior to my arrival. And I integrated the string parts into the sort of Rhodes Clavinetti, occasional organy thing that I did. And my job is basically to fill out the sound of the band and provide those parts reliably and with feeling. And there's not a lot of improvisation involved in it. It's a very disciplined role to play in the band. Okay. It's a role that honors the fact that the real excitement in this music comes from the guitar, bass, and drums trio. And that the other people who are supporting that need to provide that reliable basis so that that stuff can live and be free and you're still grounded 
by the existence of these parts that you can rely on. So to that extent, my role hasn't changed that much. The show's changed. The songs have been, you know, different, different lengths and the, yeah, the yeah. set list is different and everything. And at various points along the way, I may have been considered the musical director, although that's a hat that seems to get passed a lot or, or did at one time. But ultimately, the demands of the job as far as playing keyboards in that role in Chic are to be reliable precise and play with a lot of feeling and give those parts life as much as you can from a keyboard because they aren't keyboard parts to begin with really and uh most of them you know the string parts certainly and so that's what i try to do is be reliable and play with feeling that's the way can i ask you about um um your own personal original material okay yeah i'm just curious how much of that um over the years have you produced, you know what I mean? And It's in Bob's, but not a ton. I, I tend to be um, task-driven mostly in my work. Okay. And okay. because I've been working for other people, nurturing their productions through most of my professional life, like with anything else, when your hobby becomes your living, you need to find new hobbies, kind of. So okay. when I'm not doing that, I'm trying to do other things, you know, like raise a family or, you know, make yesterday I made a soup. I um, you know, like whatever. <laughs> um, um, so it tends to be built around my discovery process. So for example, if you present me a new DAW environment to work in or learn, I'll write a piece of music okay. to, okay, yeah, to yeah. express myself into that environment. So I get a sense of what's cool about, Studio One or Ableton Live or Logic or any of the, you know, any of the ones that I know. I, I generally, when I first meet them, I set about to write a piece in them because it gives me a sense of what I like about this and what makes what may not be quite as easy to do as in some of the other ones that I use. Because I think uh, being broadly useful in that way is something that served me well in my career. And, uh, and I kind of like doing that. I kind of like the way each one pushes me into different directions musically. And then there's the part of me that sits down and writes piano pieces. And that happens only occasionally. And I still play them. I mean, I know them and they're very much my pieces and they're not really recorded that much. And the, the other stuff is recorded and, you know, turns out to be something that I can mix and present. And uh, one of them, I think I directed you to. Uh, yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's of a particular style that sort of doesn't necessarily reflect the sound of a keyboard player from Chic, no. but uh, but it's one of the things that interests me and that I like to do. And um, I write as needed. I more more than I just sit here and you know go start you know how many roads must a man walk down. I'm not usually <laughs> that guy, but I could be. You know, it, 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 I, I prefer to do that for humor. I you know, but. <laughs> My sons are doing most of the writing these days. Yeah, that's good. It's good. It's good. <laughs> the actual song you sent for us, I um, I caught myself speeding this morning to it. <laughs> uh -oh, oh really? Wait, wait, yeah. Uh -oh. Well, I was like, trying, uh, uh, oh, I know this is going out, but anyway, um, it's that it had a, it had a sense of um, how can I explain this? There's a there's a there's a Japanese manga film called Akira, and there's a there's a bit where they're riding motorbikes hammer fast 
And I just said that your your tune was just that. And I thought, yeah. And it's just like when you're going fast, but feeling slow. But that tune had that sort of feeling, had that vibe about it. And I, I did enjoy it quite a lot. I'm sure we're going to play it on this podcast, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, yeah, 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 we'll yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah with yeah, your permission, so. Richard, we'll, we'll and play it's it. So very yeah, different to, it's so very different to what I was expecting as well, to be honest. Good. <laughs> but Good. I, enjoy, I enjoyed it much. Thank you. 
I, it's not like I spent my life grooming myself in disco bands for the day that I might end up in chic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you there, was, there was a pre-disco sort of uh, R&B band in the mid-70s that I played in around New York that played popular dance hits of the day that preceded the arrival of disco by not very much, by like less than a year probably. And then, then I went back to college. Um, but it was, it, it, I, and quite honestly, I didn't know that much of Nile Rogers' work when the call came. The funny thing is, I mean, you know, as I said earlier, I never tried to get a job with Nile Rogers. The job kind of came to me. Yeah, that's it. That's what you say. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and it wasn't, and I do love the music. In fact, I really love the music and I love playing it. And I love playing it with this band and with all the chic bands that I've been in. But it's not all that I used to do. And in fact, it's not even that much to do with what I used to do. And so the things I write tend to derive more from the interests I've had nurtured right. previous to the 33 years I've been with Nile Rodgers, which was the first half of my life. That's right. <laughs> and then so, some of those influences would be, I know you mentioned some earlier on, like the Beatles and all those guys, but is there any sort is there any 80s, the 80s English synth bands that sort of, New, one guy one guy one guy in the oh. 80s from england I'm really sorry. influenced me and that would be nick kershaw nick kershaw. Oh, okay excellent who i still think the world of and okay. think those songs and those productions are outstanding and they really informed my production style in the 80s that i developed through that crazy programming rig i was using with clay in the early 80s that produced those songs that I said earlier helped me get the job with Nile. That, but the 80s were more about singer-songwriters for me. I was not, for example, I knew of and enjoyed some of Duran Duran at the time, but never okay. did I dream that I would work with them 20 years later. Yeah. For right. example, and get to know them all personally and really like them and become friends. So it wasn't really part of what, and I knew about Gary Newman and I knew about Depeche, I knew about all of these things, but they just didn't really capture my interest that much. And I was really into sort of esoteric, bizarre, jazzier styles and uh, Weather Report and uh, yeah. earlier, this is earlier, I guess, Weather Report, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Chick Corea stuff. Yeah. I, was, I was more of a, a fusion jazzer in a way. Um, and I was also into some bizarre, British things through the seventies and eighties that were not at all mainstream things like um, Hatfield in the North and uh, Henry Cow and uh, who else? Um, Gong, which is sort of loosely British involves some British people and some French people. Um, Magma who were a French band. Um, I was into some pretty esoteric weird stuff. <laughs> eccentric. And is that, proud. Is that, is that a good word? And, or? Yeah, and proud of. And yes. I'm proudly eccentric. Where's my eccentric flag? I'm a flag back here somewhere. I got, I got around here somewhere. I think I think it would be some kind of hat, wouldn't it? Like a beret or something. <laughs> no, it's more like a wizard's hat. Yeah, that's you know, yeah, yeah. With a eight, ball, a floppy ball at the top. And, and a Rick and eight feet tall. <laughs> Oh, amazing, amazing. I actually thought you were going to say, when you said one man, I was like, my man, my mind was scanning. Who do you think? Like, who's he going to say? I, I thought you were going to say Newman. I, I, I thought for some no, reason. No, 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 that no, stuff no, didn't cool. hold that much. No, it didn't. 
didn't jerk your. I already knew your... both of those chords. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nick that Kershaw. wasn't that interesting to me. But Nick, Nick yeah. boy, could Nick wrangle some harmony. Yeah. You know, I mean, that was some, and melody too. What a yeah. great melodicist he is. Yeah. And those songs stand up great now. Even yeah, when he's yeah. just playing them alone on acoustic guitar, those songs hold up really well because they are so strong melodically. Of course, I love The Police, yeah. which is arguably a great, a great British band, even though Stuart is like sort of quasi British. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, there were some things, but I was also deeply into like Springsteen and John Mellencamp. And like I said, the singer songwriter thing really caught hold with me yeah. and the storyteller aspects of rock and roll, the post Bob Dylan, postmodern Bob Dylan, again, not knowing that I would work with him years later, postmodern Bob Dylan thing that yeah. came about uh, really interested me. And so that was more my focus that the, the sort of, uh, preset driven polyphonic synthesizer age was not that interesting to me ah, okay that's cool <laughs> it's Can just I... how it is it's just the way it goes and the funny thing is this other podcast the podcast i've been doing now for over a dozen years which is called sonic talk which is the album on which the the track i presented to you guys to play uh is from they're all about that all almost all of them because they're all 10 years younger than me and so that was all brand new to them when that hit you know, whereas for me, I was already like, yeah, I met Bob Mogan in 1975. What are you doing? <laughs> I used to play Mini Moog number 89 on gigs because my music history teacher used to lend it to me. Seriously. <laughs> wow. I mean, like I just, I kind of felt like I'd already seen, you know, that stuff isn't, you know, that's not the synthesis that's that interests it. me, but uh <laughs> Later on, it did come to interest me. So it's just, it was just the mindset I was in at the time. <laughs> Can I put you on the spot and ask yeah, you? Yeah, And ask you, um, you've worked with in, an incredible list of people. It's incredible. Is there, yeah, is, there lucky. is there a particular favorite? Is there a particular deep, really poignant memory? Well, there's, there's a hundred. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, there must be. I mean, if I didn't mention, I, I, it's going to sound like a name dropping no, no, festival. But, that's, that's, that's that's but if I didn't mention that's David perfect. Bowie, I'd be remiss. That's, if I didn't mention Diana Ross, I'd be remiss. Yeah. If I didn't mention Bob Dylan and Eric Clapton, I'd be remiss. Paul getting to play live with Paul Simon, oh, getting to play. Li All right. So in high school, when I was 14 years old, People knew me in the school as that kid who played all the Elton John songs, which were brand new at the time. We're talking about uh, your song and Tumbleweed Connection has basically came out right around that period. Little did I know that in 2005 for the first time and then subsequently like three or four times since, I would get to perform these songs with him. Wow. And, and, the, and on the first occasion I performed them with him uh, was at his uh, gala uh, red, red, white, and blue ball. I think it's called. It's a, it's an AIDS fundraiser that he holds on his estate in Windsor. And, um, and uh, he, he wanted to perform your song with Patti LaBelle oh. and I played piano. There you go. Oh, wow. That's and, such an iconic part. I mean, were you nervous at all? Because it's because it's yes, I was. <laughs> I rarely, rarely am, but in that moment, I was nervous. <laughs> I almost never am, but that time I was. And uh, and I remember he looked at me like, "So, are you going to play it?" And I was like, go. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. "Okay, here it comes." Um, 
and we've played a few times since and the last time um i mean he rec- he knows me he recognizes me he sees comfort when he sees me because he knows that certain things are going to be handled and so now it's like big hugs when i see him and it's just <laughs> you know the 14 year old in me is still going this yeah. is elton john! <laughs> you know <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. That's amazing. Getting to play with Elton John was a gigantic that's, highlight. Yeah, um, that's incredible. You know, playing basic tracks for Bob Dylan with the Chic Band with Bernard and Nile and Omar was amazing. Um, basic tracks for Bowie's album. Uh, amazing. There's so many. Which yeah. album for Bowie, out of curiosity? Uh, the one that I contributed to was called ultimately Black Tie White Noise, was the name of it as it was released. When we were working on it, it was called The Wedding Album. Okay. It just married Iman, and he wanted to memorialize his Uh, love in a recording. And so it starts with something that's still called The Wedding Song, actually. Um, But it became uh, Black Tie, White Noise. And it was uh, one of the most interesting years creatively of my life to work next to him daily. It was great. And he was very kind to me and he was very kind to my family. I have pictures of my son with him. Yes. Oh, wow. He he and and Iggy Pop were great friends, weren't they? Yeah, in Berlin. In Berlin. Spent a lot of time in Germany. Is that? (laughs) Oh, he played keyboards on an Iggy Pop tour. Once. At one time. Yeah, this was after they'd become friends, obviously. But yeah, he actually was the keyboard player in Ziggy's band. I never knew that. Mm hmm. <laughs> it's true. You can look it up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, um, there's a huge list of names you've given us, um, but of course, one that stands to, stands big for you is, is working with Nile Rogers. Who, yeah, of course. I mean, course. Um, uh, to us, he, you know, in you know, in England here and I guess across the world, he is as big a name as Bowie and Elton oh, John. Yeah, without a Bob doubt. Dylan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I mean. You, you're in a very privileged position, I guess, where you get to work closely with them. Yes, it's true. And so so, 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 so uh, can you start to tell us maybe, you know, kind of uh, what that experience is like and what's he like to work with? Well, he's great to work with because <laughs> uh, he's very, very open and very, very creative and an amazing musician on every technical level. See, I could have ended up with a job with pretty much anybody, including you know, pretenders who aren't, you know, who are the emperor with no clothes when it comes to music, really, they've become these giant stars, but they don't necessarily have this kind of a depth of basis of education like Niles got, but Mm -hmm. I lucked up on Nile Rogers and he's, first of all, he's a great guy. He's a great musician, great guitarist, great producer. Just being around him for years has informed so much about my life and my production and my playing and my discipline and uh, my work ethic. He's been incredibly kind to me uh, and my family throughout all the years that we've been. And um, I just consider him to be one of my best friends and one of the great privileges of my life was meeting him and getting to do all of this. I mean, it was, it's, it's still, I'm still gobsmacked by it because even all this, these many years in, it just seems like 
I still could have been going down that path. To, well, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just about to say, you know, do, do you have a vision of where your life would have gone if this phone call hadn't happened? Did you? you know what I mean? Yeah, you, yeah. You, I, I kind of thought I knew at that point. It took thirty years, but I kind of <laughs> thought I had figured out where it was going. But um, <laughs> fortunately, and and mind you, when that call came, the last time I had performed music as a primary source of income was ten years previously. Uh-huh. I had gone off to do a whole lot of other things yeah, yeah, yeah. and expand my education in other areas. And you know what? If all of that hadn't, and, and when I started doing that, there was no single job that encompassed all of those disciplines. It was just what interests me at the time. I was very self-motivated that way, I guess, or <laughs> selfish, if you will. Um, so when it came about that a job appeared where I was going to get to do some percentage of them in the beginning, and then ultimately pretty much all of them over the course of time, that I could never have predicted. You can't foresee the hill I was standing on in 1980 didn't show me that hill no. in the mid nineties where no. all of a sudden I'm, you know, the keyboard player, the engineer, the programmer, the studio designer, you know, that, that, that day I didn't foresee. No. And I'm really happy that it happened that way. And I don't know how to tell people to plan for that because I didn't plan <laughs> for it. It's right. just, just, I just tell people, young people when i do seminars for colleges and stuff which i've done quite a few of i tell them find stuff you like and get good at and see if you can make it pay yeah and after you've gotten good at that first one find something else and get good at that and after yeah. you're done with that find something else and get good at that and just let your life be a constant source of intellectual and artistic enrichment yeah. and hopefully it all pans out and if not you'll go work in a bank that's it <laughs> i'm with a good deal of resilience as well because i guess there's uh, some some of those will work and some of those won't and you just got to keep trying yes well actually and and it was funny because i did a uh, a live stream yesterday with my friend dominic and he has his young daughter yeah um i saw some of this asking questions <laughs> you, and you, uh, you, are you talking about cake yeah well he she <laughs> is allowed to ask to ask questions okay, of okay, okay. myself and the <laughs> chat room all right. And one of the questions was, what's my favorite kind of cake? <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. But but the more pertinent question to this discussion came at the end when it was, it, I'm starting piano lessons. Are there any advice you can give me? Uh, and, and the advice I give both to young people and old, and young people are actually better in this than old people, um, is forgive yourself. Be prepared to be bad at this for a while because nobody starts out really good at it. Yep. And you have to be willing to accept yourself as being bad at it and not go crazy about it because that's just what it takes. Yep. And everybody goes through it and you getting through it might be what takes you to getting good at it. Yep. But you don't expect to get there and start out and be wonderful because that nobody does that. And it's not how it works um, unless you're really good at singing in the shower um but if it involves piano chances are it's going to take a little time because there's the body part of it any any instrument there's the musician of the mind and that grows no matter what you're doing and then there's the musician of the body which is like training up an athlete and you have to train up your body to deliver the things that your mind is after mm -hmm. and um if you practice your body comes together and can deliver those things and if you don't practice your mind still grows as a musician just by hearing things and thinking about them, but your body will not be able to keep up. 
because you don't, you haven't like any athlete, you haven't practiced the the mm. rigors, the physical rigors mm. of it well enough. Exactly. I, I talk to my, um, cause I teach at university and I say to my students, cause you know, they love the Victor Wootens. I'm a bass teacher and they love Victor Wooten and Joe. Of course, Dart Victor Wooten. And I, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I say to him, I say to him, sorry, I don't say to him, I say to my students, um, when you see these people on YouTube on stage, you're, you're seeing the final product and it's almost like you're looking it's, and I kind of, I use the analogy of a glacier, like that when you see the performance, you're seeing the bit, the, the shiny glistening bit that's stuck out the top of the sea that everyone looks at and wonders at. But what you don't see is, is all the ice underneath that's holding it up, which is basically the work that's gone into it and the preparation oh, yeah. that's gone into it. And, and, the, ra- and the, the ratio is massively yeah, different. But people don't yeah, see that. They, they only ever see yeah. the final product. They don't actually realize. Victor yeah. Wooten wasn't born. I mean, he started playing bass when he was three, so it wasn't far off. But he wasn't born slapping the bass. Yeah. <laughs> there was, a, there was I, I a lot know, of time. I don't know with Wittem <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe I don't know. He's, There's a lot of he's time and, else, but... and effort that's gone into it, and people yeah. aren't always aware of this. I think, I think, especially from an educational point of view, people need to know that it's not all, you know, natural talent is important, but hard work and perseverance is, is, is crucial, really. Oh, it's key. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and as I said, self-forgiveness. Yeah. You have to forgive yourself one. for sucking for a while because yeah. yeah. you're going to. I've, and that's I, just how it is. I have, um, briefly, I have friends at work who still say, now I'd love to learn to play an instrument. And I'm like, well, you learned to drive a car. Why, you know, what's the difference? You paid someone to teach you to drive a car. Is, is he, did you do that out of necessity for life? Or it's the same thing. You can do the same thing. G- give yourself five well, minutes a day. And it's, it's, he, it's easier to hide your inadequacies behind the wheel until, wow. you, until, you, until you get hurt. <laughs> um but uh it's it's uh, that's why i said it's easier for young people because old people aren't good at sucking at things Maybe. old people yeah. have already settled into routines where they get to yeah, emphasize yeah, the things right, right. that they've gotten good at so for us as as adults to be willing to take on something as a beginner and be bad at it is a rare quality that i admire in the people who i see doing it and i encourage them like crazy yeah, because it takes a lot of courage that most of us have abandoned in our youth <laughs> in order to be willing to be bad at something, to get good at something and to be patient about it. Mm-hmm. Also, as you get older, you start to feel impatient about the time it takes. So last time I saw you in real life, Richard, I don't think you saw me because I was quite far away. It was at Hampton Court Palace. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, my word, what, what a stunning gig that was. I mean, we knew it was Hampton Court Palace. We thought it was going to be in a field out the back. We didn't realize it was going to be inside the palace. <laughs> that must have been quite stunning from the, from the stage point of view. That must have been quite stunning to look at. Um, well, it is. It's not my first time there. And I like to joke that anytime you play a gig where there's turrets, it's a good gig. <laughs> turrets. <laughs> nice to look up and see turrets while you're playing. Um, <laughs> It's a lovely little venue, kind of. It's nice the way it's kind of enclosed by mm. turrets and yeah, um, and building. And uh, every now and again, I like to think I can see the ghost of Henry VIII floating by, waving <laughs> his hands <laughs> in the air like he just don't care. <laughs> There's any way you're going to see it. That'll be the place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do, exactly. Do, do you have a preference for the sort of gig you enjoy playing the most? Do you, do you like playing to thousands of people or intimacies or, you know... I'm just happy for every opportunity. Big, big, it doesn't matter place. to me. No, that's good. That's great. It it matters to me that those people care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That much matters to me a great deal. But as to the size of the audience specifically, no. 
Yeah. We, I don't try harder for more people. It's I'm trying just as hard every time. And, uh, and I just love playing that music with those people in that band. So it's, doesn't it, wherever you set us up, I'm happy to be doing it. Perfect. Is that, is that a favorite yeah. venue maybe, or, uh, some of your well, there's been venues that have a certain personal resonance for me because of my personal history or because of their uh, venerated status. So getting to play in the Royal Albert Hall would be one of those things. Oh, getting wow. to play yeah. to a massive number of people in Hyde Park or in Glastonbury, that would be another one of those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But playing in smaller venues, too, can happen. Like, like Hampton isn't small, but it's not, you know. 20,000 people, mm. you know, Hampton court is a wonderful venue. I you know, theater gigs are wonderful. Club gigs can be wonderful. Um, it's really kind of about how we're feeling each other as we play it. Um, and that's what sort of defines the moment to me. And I know if we're having a good time that they, the audience will yeah, be having a good time. And so yeah. I just kind of take that, as given and just completely immerse myself in the performance. And I don't even measure it against anything except wanting to make sure that I'm going to do the right thing as it comes along next. Cause I play a lot in the show. I, there's a you lot. Certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? No, uh, um, I do. I, there's just not a lot of spots in the show where I'm not playing something. And uh, I like to make sure that I'm delivering reliably with feeling, you know, yeah. and uh, that takes a sort of a complete immersion emotionally and spiritually in the gig and trusting everybody and listening as closely and as hard as I can. Because some of the stuff I do has to be rhythmically sympathetic in order not to interrupt the groove that the other guys are doing. Mm -hmm. So take, for example, the song, uh, My Feet Keep Dancing, where I'm pulsing eighth notes with my ba, left ba, hand ba, throughout ba, the song. Ba, 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 now, yeah. it sounds like the easiest thing in the world when you're doing it right. Yeah. But start doing it wrong. And all of a sudden, everybody's looking over like, yeah. what? What's going on? You know, like, <laughs> like and, uh, you know, I'm all about supporting everybody else's eighth notes with those parts. And in order to do that, Every I'm I'm my receptors are on full. Everything is wide open, and I'm just taking in everything yeah, and trying yes. to find that middle ground that makes it all feel like mm. they're playing basically to a sequencer, yeah. which is what it sort of has to sound like because that's what that that's how you'd represent that part in modern times is yeah. probably yeah. sequence it and people play the backing tracks and stuff. We don't do that. So that's just one example of a place in the show where I'm on full receptor mode and I'm just kind of like just completely floating with it and trying not to disrupt the groove in any way and make it speak well. And, you know, it's, it's tremendously rewarding yeah, when it's working. Oh, amazing. I was just going to say as well, this, so the sound on stage, is that monitors or are you in-ears or? In-ears. You're in-ears. Yeah, you feel. That's your, that's your yeah, yeah, yeah. For, in my yeah. case, there's one or two uh we might be down to one it may just be jerry at this point he's not wearing yeah ears, he but... doesn't use in ears and he plays loud doesn't he so he must you think <laughs> <laughs> so he must i mean he must he must is that a bass player he's a bass because I, 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 so. I can't handle it i can't handle in ears as well and i i don't know hopefully jerry I is a fantastic musician oh, yeah, and amazing. an exciting player amazing yeah so uh yeah. yeah he might be a little loud once in a while but uh <laughs> it, it, he's a great player and uh and we want him to be happy and comfortable. <laughs> and uh, in my case, it's in ears. And uh, we have an absolutely magical 
monitor engineer. Oh, brilliant. And he's been with us now for, uh, I think, 17 years. And I remember the day we met, <laughs> like it was yesterday. <laughs> and uh, I never have to think about it. And these days, we don't even sound check. We just walk in, walk up to the instrument, play. He's got it, he's got it now. It's that reliable. That's All right. right. Our setup and our crew. Our crew, we have a fantastic crew all, all across the board. I mean, Marco is wonderful on monitors, but everybody on that stage yeah. is musical, astute, attentive, sympathetic, wonderful, and, and just a member of the family. They don't get treated any yeah, differently than the band members treat yeah, each other. And Perfect. it's just fantastic. That is lovely. Um, yeah, it is. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of, in a way, I'm kind of happy to, say, to hear you say that you don't sound check because when you played Victorious, uh, two months ago now, because we're October, aren't we? I, yeah. was, I was playing as well. Um, and I was just, I was literally like 100 meters away. And, and my friend said to me, Shika, sound checking, they're sound checking. So I ran over to your stage because it was all open plan. And I just missed you sound checking. I was like, oh, sound check. Yeah, apparently. But I don't know whether, obviously, it wasn't you. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe no, the was, crew, the crew yeah. might, Marco yeah. plays good keyboards, Gert's a good guitar just, player, Martin's a good just drummer. A jam. But, but my friend just said, it sounds like, well, he said, it sounds like Sheikah sound checking. We didn't see you. So I was like, I was quite upset for us that I missed, like, you know, seeing <laughs> you play. I would have got like a free ticket, but it sounds like I would have seen the crew play, <laughs> not the band. So, which still would have been a treat. <laughs> well, we have we. There are situations under which we sound check, and uh, and that's always fine. And every now and again, um, when the guitar player is otherwise occupied, I'll get to play guitar, <laughs> which is great fun. That's one yeah. of the. That's a fun sound check for me. Yeah, that's <laughs> the one. yeah, yeah. yeah. Russ and I each get to play a song on guitar because oh, we both play. We're both guitarists as well, so uh, it's fun when we get to do that. You know, pretend to be Nile Rodgers for a minute and play the hit maker guitar <laughs> and of course victorious nearly i don't i mean i guess you're aware of this it nearly didn't happen because of the whole obviously the covid situation and oh. being covid secure and everything like that what's it what's it been like for you and the, and the band being post post covid have you know mind myself where victorious was that's important oh, it's in gone from my ah the portsmouth gig yes yeah. yes yes um well, it's a little bizarre touring like this because the demands of the testing, the constant testing prior to departure and after you arrive, and we have I have boxes of antigen tests across the room right there that I brought home because you are able to get them for free in your country and not mm. my country. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. I didn't realize. And that. we had to uh, self-test every single day as well as be tested according to international travel protocols at the beginning and at the end of any given tour. And in between, I seriously limit my social interactions. I mean, as much as I have friends that I'd love to go see and have dinner with and hang out with and everything else, I just wasn't doing it. I, because yeah. the, the risk benefit thing doesn't work out for risk in this situation because the risk is i get sick and now i'm stuck here quarantined for 10 days and i can't play the gig yeah yeah, yeah. and that that's not an acceptable risk for me because that's the only reason i'm here is to play the gig so my whole life becomes around acting like it's the middle of 2020 and nobody's been vaccinated yet whereas you know when we all got vaccinated here and the beginning of last summer, we were all kind of just hanging out. And it was like, 
all right, we're not going to get sick. It's cool. And then when it became clear that we were going to have to stay testing negative in order to be able to tour, all of a sudden I went right back to 2020 protocols because yeah. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't risk getting sick. No. And it's a lot of people, you know, they, when you get down to crew and entourage and PR and management and everybody, it's a lot of people that have to remain healthy. You know, asymptomatic positive is not good enough. You know, you you can, you know, test positive and be completely asymptomatic. That's no good. Yeah, you yeah, still, exactly. you still can't, you still can't perform and you still can't travel home. It's the, I can't go home part, quite honestly. The, <laughs> I can't perform and I can't, that's bad enough. But then I have to stay here until they tell me I can go home. That's, you know, I don't know about you, but that's not a really appealing no, position to be in for me. So, so uh, I, I so it's kind of bizarre. That's something, sure. um, again, that people are not always aware of, actually. Um, if a band has to can of, of your size has to cancel the show, that's a big deal, isn't it? That's a really big deal. No. I don't think they would cancel the show unless it was, <laughs> I, I don't know, unless it was Nile. Um, because you don't want to disappoint that number of people. No, the, the spirit of wanting to bring the happiness to people who so desperately need it still drives the whole enterprise and okay. uh i just don't i don't i didn't i'm so glad we all made it um through both two week legs with that insane schedule we were on and did, yeah you were laughing down the home. country weren't you yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like we wait we're waving we're waving it as you flew past from hit from yes. hit up to scotland and back <laughs> scotland and back it's got newcastle and what was it margate and then Cardiff and which is opposite ends of the width of England. It was it was uh it was a comfortable tour bus and we were glad yes, yes. to have a comfortable tour bus and a great driver. And uh we all, you know, we're all sort of adults, you know, it's not like traveling with people hell-bent on self-destruction. I don't know if you've ever traveled with younger bands, but uh Oh, yeah. They can become overwhelmed with lifestyle issues, and uh, we yes. generally don't. I remember, I remember, I got invited onto a heavy, like a metal band's tour bus, and the thing, the one thing that sticks for me was the smell. It's still the smell <laughs> of, of twenty-year-old sweaty men that never shower and being in the same in the enclosed space for a while. We can't have it. We can't have it. And also, uh, in in the way we were touring in England, we had uh, the singers on the bus too. So you can't have that. You got to be. You got to be polite, respectful, they got, clean. They've got, they got the standards. Clean. You got to leave. <laughs> you got to leave the loo in reasonable condition. Yeah, exactly. You know, like exactly. stuff like that. You, know, you gotta, can't be messing around. It can't be like dormitory style male living. Yeah, it has to, you know. <laughs> and we get and we get hotels everywhere we go, and we get to shower properly, and you know. He treats you well. Not We're well treated. Yeah, We're well treated. Yes. We deserve it. So it's great. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, do you see? I mean, it's the impossible question. It's the impossible question. But do you um, do you see touring ever getting back to like it was? And or do you, it's just so hard to see. I mean, it's not just it's not just the um, the risk of infection. I mean, getting scientific, but it's also people's uh, mentality, mentality and confidence and trusting, being trusting being in, in a huge group of people like we used to be. I just I it's hard to see things. It's just difficult at the moment, isn't it? That's so what I'm trying to say. It is. It is. And so based on 
the expectations presented to us by our management, we expect to be touring next year, much more like we were touring in 2019. Oh, However, that's that said, for the year and a half we weren't touring, I wondered if we would ever tour like that again. Yeah. And now having done two two-week runs through the UK, I don't feel any more confident about it one way or the other. Mm. Now, I wish I did, and I hope that all of the promise that's been developed through our, you know, reputation and through our avail, you know, I hope that next year turns out to be what everybody's hoping it'll turn out to be, but I'm not anywhere near hundred percent certain no, that it will no. be. No. And I don't know anymore. I don't have a crystal ball. I, no. I can tell you that the experience of going through this pandemic has been alternately disheartening. Um, disappointing occasionally bordering on disgusting mm -hmm. in terms of whatever expectations i thought i held out for my fellow man mm -hmm. um so i'm just really counting my blessings every single day thankful for the fact that i have a comfortable place to live that i haven't gone hungry and that my health is reasonably good for a guy my age and uh and if that happens i'll be the happiest guy in town and i'm hoping it will but i i don't know that i feel i can count on that i um, just hope so and that's and we're hoping and we're going to see you back here in june is that right that's i mean i've checked the tour schedule it's, it's like june 20 well that yeah we do have gigs booked in 2022 in the summertime and yeah I have every expectation that we should be able to do those at the very least. There's America. We, we're doing a lot of arena tours in America, opening for major other acts that we love and have enjoyed being with. And we're hoping to resume that as well. Excuse me. Because as much as we represent a certain thing in the UK and in certain parts of mainland Europe, uh, as far as Nile's stature and the appreciation for this music, in America, it's a slightly different story, and we're still re-seeding the country and their taste buds with this music. And we're doing it through extensive arena bus touring with opening. We opened one year for Duran Duran. We opened one year for Earth, Wind & Fire. We've toured with Lionel Richie. Uh, in 2021, in the beginning of 2020, we were touring with Cher. Oh yes, who, I saw some of that. That looks amazing. Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> me, who sell ticket? Who sells tickets like nobody's business? It's unbelievable how that <laughs> woman can sell tickets. So, I'd like to see all of that, and I would feel privileged as can be to get to do some more of this. Yeah. Um, just like we have. So I'm really, really hopeful, and I guess we'll use cautiously optimistic. Mm -hmm but by no means certain. <laughs> well, I, mean, I was going to say, um, it's, it's kind of coming back to some form of normality. You've done a few gigs. I've done a few gigs. Yeah. And it's nice to see, yeah. for me, we did, uh, we did a, a concert down in Gosport. I helped a band down depth for them. And it was just nice to see the audience. They were, it was like, they were just smiling no matter what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were just happy to be out. They were happy to be amongst other people. Oh, yeah. It was just a lovely feeling, you know, and, and the vibe was oh, really, sure. really great. So um, let's just hope. Let's just hope. Yeah, we, we must. We have to. And we have to hope that more and more people get the uh, idea that there's a way to make this happen. 
yeah. uh, through our actions and through our willingness to do uh, what is in the common good um, and stop carping about personal freedoms and being violated. Uh, that would be my preference, but that's just me. Well, every time, every time, uh, I've seen, seen Sheik a few times now, uh, and pre and post COVID, I mean, that feeling of joy and happiness, um, you can just see it in the crowd. Everyone's just, the tunes, the tunes and the performances oh. just, are just so, they just speak for themselves, don't they? And everyone, everyone is so happy to be there. And it's a band that really spread, I think it's really spread joy and love of, yep. over the audience. Like no band I've ever seen before. Really. It's just, it's just wow. such a happy occasion. <laughs> Thank you. So nice of you to say. Um, yeah, we sell happy all night long. And, uh, and I love the feeling that we're all sharing that spirit together. And I can feel, you can feel it circulating through the audience and coming back to the stage. You can right. feel that everybody's in this wonderful sort of blissful place of enjoyment and, and getting to share that is the single most wonderful thing about all of this. And it's so hard to explain. It's so almost intangible to people in a way, um, but it's just such a wonderful spiritual energy that I'm so glad that you were able to acknowledge and enjoy because that's what means everything to me is the sharing part. Well, next, I like next, to... next time you play here, look out in the audience because you'll you'll see me and Carl there with a <laughs> "We love you, Richard" banner holding up. Oh. <laughs> oh. Give us a wave. Thanks, Richard. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we love you too. <laughs> uh, well, thank well, thank you very like huge yeah huge thanks for uh, sharing your time and your expertise um, and your conversation with us. It's been an absolute joy, hasn't it, Carl? It's been, it's a... been amazing. Thanks it, for having it, me. I really enjoyed it. Usually, I talk a whole bunch more. <laughs> but I think I'm a bit. Uh, yeah, I think I dominated your no, airwaves. No, no, no. I, I, I think it's, it was just brilliant. It's just amazing to hear and listen to stories. I could listen all night long. These things are never long enough in my eyes. No. If you, you know, <laughs> Well, to be continued over a, over a pint in a pub sometime that's when we're all feeling oh, safe right. about okay. it. Okay, it's a date. That's, 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 okay, that's uh, definitely going to happen. Let's lock that in. A pint of British, a pint of British ale in the <laughs> conversation. Yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> yes, please. Fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, and we'll see you. We'll see you in June. Yeah. So have a wonderful rest of the year. Have a wonderful rest of, rest of um. Hope everything goes well for you. Yeah, you guys have a great holiday season and my best to your families. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yours too. Yours too. Cheers. And we'll see you in about six months. Thanks. All right, cool, gents. (laughs) Thank you very much. Cheers. Thanks for having me. How was that? (laughs) See? I'll do that again because it's all gone all spiky on the thing. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I shouted a bit then. But how was that? Um, It was. it's lovely when someone has so many stories and like, I know he was really, really um, humble about name dropping and all that, but that's, but we, we, we want to hear that. We didn't even ask him about Bob Dylan. He mentioned uh, Bob Dylan. He mentioned Bob Dylan. And I know, he's, and I think, <laughs> I think, I think from a list I've read somewhere, I'm sure he's worked with Freddie Mercury. I would have loved to have heard about And, and like bands like Incubus as well. And yeah. Craig, what, what's he done for Incubus? Like, I don't know. That's incredible. Yeah, we need to have an episode two with him, don't we? We do. There's just too we many do. questions, and he gave us a, he gave us a good deal amount of his time, which is which he was very generous and we're very grateful for. But we need to do it all over right. again. So, like he said, we're going to meet in a pub. Where was he? He was in Connecticut. Yeah, you said it better than me. Connecticut. Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, what a, what a gent. Um, thanks again. 
to him. And thank you for Kelly for hooking us up. Yeah, thanks to Kelly for I have no idea how does she she knows him through well uh well I think the Sheik tribute band basically and he's such a generous guy that he um he offered to listen to us and he's critiqued us and given us tips and things and Brilliant. Uh, and then being even more generous by giving us an hour and a half this evening. So. Exactly. No, it was lovely. It was lovely. I was like I said before. I was a bit like because we had it. We had the video going, um, and I'm just this. I must have looked like a goose because I was just sat there smiling, just listening <laughs> to stories. And I'm like, this is great. I love. I could listen to this all night. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks for having us again. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by buying us a coffee. There's a link in the listening notes. Co oh, coffee. Coffee is not a bastard. Only technology. <laughs> Coffee's all right. I, uh, decaf's good if you want as well. I go there. I go there a lot. And then I have a normal coffee and I'm in a really good mood. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Ready? Oh, what, what are you going to sing about? I have no idea now. I'm all flummoxed. <laughs> should, should I do something funky? Do <laughs> we probably should. If you go funky, I have to go sort of James Brown. Okay. Oh, no. Are we up for this? Uh, Are you ready for this? Yeah. Because our listeners can't see what I can see when you go solid James Brown. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on, James Brown. Got it. Yeah! Made a cat out of a bag. No. Got a cat's in the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> Technology, you're a bastard. Technology, you're a bastard. You're not a good thing, you're not a bad thing. You're not nothing, you're just a bastard. In a bag made of cats. Bridget. Bridget again. Take it to the bridge. <laughs> Let's quit, call it, end it, done. Ow! Beep, 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 beep. <laughs>